0: I'm Ewan Sutherland, and you are listening to A Portrait of Excellence, the Gay Times Honours podcast.
1: The Anthony Gray Gay Times Honour for Government and Policy goes to Ewan Sutherland for the landmark case he brought against the European Court of Human Rights, challenging the age of consent. Lewis, how on earth do you begin a conversation like this? Wow, precisely. Sitting down with you and it just made me realise his story was completely remarkable that this 17-year-old boy in the early 90s would make a complaint to the European Commission of Human Rights to take on the British government uh, against the age of consent, which was 21 at the time, for, for gay men. It was really interesting sitting down with him and talking through the reservations he had before bringing forward that complaint and the challenges that he faced while he was doing it, especially the pushback he got from the powerful establishment that he was up against. But also I spoke to him about what LGBT people have got left to fight for, what rights out there have we yet to claim, and also advice that he has for the next generation of activists who want to go out there and and make a difference.
0: I am uh, somebody that was involved in the campaign to equalise the age of consent back in the 1990s and early 2000s. I think I was 16 when I responded to a survey that was tucked inside Gay Times asking people to pop down and see their local MP because there was a potential for Edwina Curry to table a motion in the House of Commons to reduce the age of consent from 21 down to 16. Um, and I did that. I popped down to see my local MP on a whim. She thought I was asking about age concern for gay men. Um, This was Tessa Jowell in South East London, and uh, we had a chat. We spoke about the principles of equality, and she was uh, automatically very supportive of the concept, wanted to read the legislation that was being proposed, But the concept of equality before the eyes of the laws was something she was very happy to support. I um, phoned Stonewall, who had put this um, insert into Gay Times. Um, And on a wet Friday afternoon, the person who answered the phone was their press officer, who tried to get me on their mailing list for any future publications or um, uh, campaigns they were doing. And I didn't fit into any of the age criteria they had for their mailing list. So he ended up just saying, well, how old are you? And I said, I was 16. And he asked a few questions. about whether my parents knew that I was gay, whether uh, they knew I'd been down to see my MP. And he was quite delighted to hear that they were fully on board with that. And he asked me to pop up the following week to see him at the Stonewall office. Um, I think I mess up with Angela Mason who was um, in charge of Stonewall at the time and I think Ian McKellen and we sat down had a chat and they were looking for a 16 year old to be involved in the campaign um, and suggested I go home and have a think and talk to my family about it Um, and I said that I would and I did and I think the following week I ended up meeting Neil Kinnock on Westminster Bridge with Ian McKellen and a photograph and an interview went into the Times newspaper and from there there were it just sort of snowballed and eventually the age of consent was reduced from 21 to 18. Um, Three people ahead of me had been taking um, the British government's European Court of Human Rights, Will Parry, Hugo Greenhouse, and Ralph Wilde. And there was a need for another case to be lodged from somebody that was 16, 17 at the time. And again, with a huge amount of support from my family, I ended up having court papers submitted against the British government in the European Court of Human Rights, which was an amazing thing to do. Um, I sometimes look back and think, how on earth did that all happen? Um, But this sequence of events based upon my family's background views that social justice, equality were just good things, uh, was the right of everybody to be treated fairly. And this led on to changing government from the Tories to New Labour, different perspectives and it took some time but with the court case proceeding smoothly slowly with peaks of activity um, the Labour government decided that they would introduce the change in the British Parliament and we ended up with equality before the eyes of the law and that was it was an amazing thing to be part of and I'm very proud of what a lot of people did and my part in that.
1: Mm. And I, I turned 16 in 2004 so I was basically one of the first generations that basically benefited from that mm. uh, change in the law. But going back to the early 90s how, how much of a real fear was it for um, young gay men to sort of be sexually active and, and it be against all What are your memories of, of that time? I remember very secretly dating guys
0: within a year or two of my my age at the time so sort of 16 17 and there were absolute real worries that if the next door neighbor the one of the parents decided that they were appalled and unhappy with this a phone call to the police could really happen Mm. it the threat of it whether there was a huge reality in two teenagers being hauled in front of the court, but that was real. And that created uh, an environment where people were afraid to access safe sex education. They were made very vulnerable. Um, One of the things, one of the arguments against equalising the age of consent was that teenage boys needed additional levels of protection from predatory older people or from themselves. But actually... The fear of prosecution prevented people from accessing support, advice, and guidance to make the right decision for themselves. I now work in sexual health as a nurse, and the idea of people being denied access to a service or being fearful of accessing a service because they were worried about the police knocking on their door is appalling. Mm it created a huge climate of fear and we still got um, higher rates of suicide and mental health problems in our queer youth than the straight population. There's still a long way to go, but the fear of prosecution has at least now gone.
1: Yeah. And going back as well, when you're at 16, 17 and you're going to take on this massive kind of it's very David and Goliath. Did it feel like that, or it sounds like you had a very like very big support system? So it felt like you were in a position where you thought, oh, I can, I can take on, and you you did.
0: Family support is incredibly helpful, but it never started with the idea of that was the goal, that was the end point. It started with a phone call, at one interview, with it gradually built and built. Um, I think if I'd realised what it was going to be I may have thought twice about doing it but at the time it just seemed the right things to be doing and each of them by themselves felt quite manageable it did become quite a big and overwhelming experience um, and those times in your teens are challenging enough without another huge um weight on your shoulders Mm. but they were amazing experiences there were some very tough times as well i remember doing dreadfully in my a levels because a series of death threats had come to my home address the stonewall office my barrister my college itself and i was just utterly overwhelmed and there were episodes like that that came along from time to time where uh, there was some quite uh, hurtful things said by opponents, political opponents, blue rints, crusty old majors from the Conservatives and from certain mainstream press but overcame those. They they were very challenging at times and I think I kind of, the the thought I'd had about where I was going to go and what I was going to do, of A-levels, perhaps have a year out, university, none of that really happened in that sequence. But the totality of the experience still, I think, has been incredibly rewarding. Um, And in a way, I wouldn't have changed any of it because where I am now, at the ripe age of 40... I don't think I'd be here without all of those experiences, the good and the bad. They've sort of added layers and nuances to sort of my character and my experience, which have been very beneficial ultimately.
1: They weren't easy at the time. Mm-hmm. And obviously it took seven, I think it was seven years from, you, from when you first lodged a complaint in 94, and then it was 2001 that I actually came into law. Why so long? What were the, what were the biggest setbacks?
0: The court cases in Strasbourg take time. There are many, many uh, processes that go through. Ultimately, that court, my understanding is that it's accessible for people to uh, take their case against their sovereign government. Ultimately, what the european court would really like is for change to come from within so there were so many opportunities for the conservative government under major to have decided that this is something they wanted to do themselves or to allow time for debates or free votes they decided against that so we got up to the 1997 um, general election and i can't remember anything other than a conservative government and New Labour came in, these high hopes, and they had a big programme of legislation they wanted to get through. This fitted into their kind of equality and human rights outlook, and the case still went on, and we get to 2000, and... There was time and there was an acknowledgement that they would much like, uh, much prefer to allow time, support a debate and allow it to take place within the UK. And that was, I think, for many reasons preferable to a ruling from Strasbourg that was then going to get forced upon um, the British statute books. I think for many reasons that was preferable a debate in Parliament in the Commons and the Lords that changes the law has got more credibility to your opponent than Brussels bureaucrats or however it would have been presented. That takes time, counting the numbers where there's um, space in um, Parliament to allow those things to happen. But it was there, that was when the government changed that process was underway and we were able and I think we were feeling very confident that had it needed to have gone to a final ruling we would have won but we were very happy to allow it to take place within the scope of the British legislative framework um, and we were then able to dust it down and put it to bed. Um, But all of those things take a lot of time. The change in government was hugely important. Mm -hmm. It allowed a new wave of MPs, a new way of thinking, to support some of the people that have been in Parliament for a long time that were our advocates, but it took time. Mm -hmm. And those grassroots campaigns do take time and they need that momentum and they do need people to champion them. Um, But I think as a sort of lobbying organisation, Stonewall had some very bright minds that were very aware of what tactics were going to work. And we would have liked it to have not taken quite so long, 10 years or so, but it happened eventually and I'm very grateful that it did.
1: Am I correct in saying that you had some pushback from the House of Lords when it was going through Parliament? The House of Lords that we have now still needs
0: a huge amount of reform, but back then there were even more um, ancestral titles, people with incredibly outdated views that were able to block, oppose, and a lot of the venom that came from them would not be tolerated today. It was a a larger and hugely unelected, and which still is unelected, but uh, even more unrepresentative um, body of people than we, we have now. So the House of Lords was blocking lots of motions and decisions from the House of Commons, and the Labour government... Did decide to use something called the Parliament Act, which meant that after so many blocks from the House of Lords, the vote from the Commons trumped any objections that they had, and again that needs a strong, principled decision from the government. And before Labour got in, we would not have had that. Um, there's a lot to be said for continuing those reforms within Parliament, both houses, but it, yeah, I. There was a huge amount of unpleasant comment coming from the House of Lords.
1: Was it just purely outdated views?
0: Very outdated views um, on gay people in general, queer people in general. It, it. I. Hopefully, I've blocked out a lot of it, but it's a very outdated. Um, It's traditions that it wraps itself up in. It's completely out of date. I remember watching one of the votes in Parliament where I think the age of consent was brought from 21 down to 18 and I was in the um, Strangers Gallery, the viewing gallery above. And when the vote came through and we hadn't got 16, um, I was really upset. I was crying And another one of the sort of volunteer coordinators from Stonewall put their arm around me just to be very supportive. And one of the ushers wearing some sort of Dickensian dress coat and tie and whatever, came over and told us not to touch because it would be offensive to the members sitting down below. Again, that stiff upper lip, that crusty old view of Sex, sexuality, gender was very prevalent then. Um, things have changed, things have improved. There are still things that need working on.
1: Yeah. And I I was going to touch upon this is massive case. Did you ever have that moment where you thought this might not happen? Or were you always fairly confident that you could sort of pursue the change?
0: i had for- hopes in sort of 94 that the vote um, sponsored by Dwyna Currie would actually bring it down. I'd really hope that I'd have this short input um, and that that debate would result in equality um, um, for all young people in the eyes of the law. And that was hugely disappointing. I was absolutely amazed. But I'd thought that this six-month, six-week, I've forgotten how long it was, Build up or of actually just showing, look, I, I, I'm gay, I'm a teenager, uh, I'm not demonic, I can make my own choices would be an, what, enough as part of the Stonewall campaign to have equalised it. But it was awfully disappointing, it was absolutely shocking. Um, but that galvanised a lot of people to continue. Um, and I think we we had such confidence in the concept of equality before the eyes of the law, that it was absolutely the right thing to um, move forwards with. There were other campaigns at the time, um, gate in the military being one, which again, just were using that concept of absolute equality before the eyes of the law for those. Basic freedoms to join and serve in the military if that's what you want, to sleep with somebody that you want to without the fear of prosecution. Those were just such simple concepts of human rights that we felt you had to continue. Mm.
1: And I suppose the LGBT youth now, I mean, we've got more more rights than ever. There's, mm. there's, there's some way to go, but we've got more rights now than, than, than ever. What do you see as the next sort of big battles for the community? What do you think seriously needs to be looked at and fought for next?
0: I think some of the next big things are already underway. I think the way in which society as a general treats trans people is something which has been improving but we have a long way to go. Um, I'm looking at other things that affect um, the queer community and seeing access to the PrEP drugs coming up, um, it's a field I work in and the battles to get funding secured for um, that service which has got a huge benefit to physical health uh, but also mental well-being Um, I think mental health services for um, the nation are being, uh, it's incredibly tight funding at the moment uh, across the health service, but mental health has taken a significant cut in real funding. And those are services which support people who are having identity and well-being issues as they grow, that they, people should feel secure as they're moving forward into their teens, into their youth, um, young adult um, eight, um, years. They should be feeling confident. And I think that um, where there are cuts to services, where there is um, a lack of visibility in mainstream media about, for example, trans people or discussing mental health or the suicide levels within young gay people, that those are some of the big worries that I see moving forward, and we've got a long way to go on those.
1: You, were, you mentioned earlier about when you were sort of starting the campaign to have the age of consent changed. A lot of it was to do with education, with young people. Do you think sex education for LGBT youth also needs to be looked at? Because there doesn't feel like there's much to I know I certainly didn't have any when I was 16, 17. I feel that
0: sex education generally in the UK has still got a long way to go. It's something that, uh, as far as I understand, families can still opt their children out of. I think the large number of faith schools and what they're teaching uh, does give me some concern. Um, I think that there is, um, I think one of the other concerns I have is this focus on academic attainment. doesn't always allow for time to be allocated to those really important issues of confidence, of well-being, um, that make you a rounded person. Academic ability is incredibly important. We'd like everyone to uh, reach their full potential. But there are many other areas of potential that we should be helping people grow. And I, I, I think the focus is purely on League table results, and I don't think that young people are being particularly well served with sexual, personal growth, and development. I think it's a much more difficult thing for schools to quantify in attainment. So the focus still remains very much on how many A's and A stars does a school
1: get. Mm. So, how do we work to change that? What do you think needs to happen in order for that system to kind of? be overturned
0: Uh, that's the difficult one i think that when um the only way that schools or um, other services are marked or uh, inspected is about their academic league table results i don't know what the measure is of saying how well a school or uh, a borough or a county nurtures grows Uh, empowers young people, uh, particularly when additional funding, local authority funding is being cut. I don't know how you go about that. I think it needs a change of focus and that needs to come from young people themselves, but also those um, teaching support teams that actually work in that field. I think they're feeling underpowered, underpaid,
1: undervalued by government at the moment Um, and if there's a young LGBT person at the moment they want to, to fight an injustice that they see in the legal system what would your advice to them be it is possible
0: for change to happen It is possible for young activists to make a significant change that can be in the law or it can be more at a grassroots level about changing perceptions, um, changing cultures their access to information at the moment and reaching out and networking with people uh, is amazing. Um, I imagine can only imagine now what Stonewall or another activist group would have done with the uh, wealth of uh, social media resources at their Um, that we have now back in the 90s to get people out um, putting pressure on their MPs to support votes Um, what would I think believe in yourself believe that what you are trying to do is a fair and a good thing for society and for yourself research and look also beyond the narrow scopes of those that you engage with and get Don't be afraid of different opinions. Don't be afraid of going beyond who you speak to on Twitter and Facebook. There is a a large number of resources out there. It's possible to make change. It takes perseverance and courage, but it's possible.
1: There's been some discussion about the LGBT community, especially the, the new generation, being sort of complacent because they've never really had to fight for anything generations before them have fought for yeah. equal marriage and age of consent and and pride what are your views on that do you think there is still sort of an uh, an activist spirit within the LGBT community in 2017
0: yeah I I think there very much is still um, activism out there I think um, a lot of the uh, developments with for example, Large makeup lines or glossy centrefolds being of trans people now won't have happened without people from the queer community fighting for visibility for trans people. I think if you look at grassroots activism that's allowed people to source PrEP drugs online and to access NHS services to make sure that they are under surveillance and getting the right medical advice... But because the NHS is not allowed to fund those, serves, those grassroots activism are, we are seeing the results of that. There's still a long way to go, but there is, it's not all doom and gloom. There, yes, some people have forgotten how we've got to the point where we're at now, but that's not everybody. I think there's, um, it's easy to critique uh, a generation that's coming after you. But there's a lot of hope uh, that I see about what's going on at the moment and I'm very hopeful of the progress that we as a queer community are making and where we've gone in 25, 50 years and there is a, a way to go but it isn't all doom and gloom, there is a lot of hope that I can see out there.
1: The music for A Portrait of Excellence has kindly been provided by Lauren Flax Head over to signclyde.com forward slash Lauren Flax to hear more. Thank you to our sponsors, the National Portrait Gallery, British Land, the Federation of Small Businesses, Andaz, Absolute, Bloom Gin, Beach Blanket Babylon and Chappie for believing in the Gay Times Honours. A special thanks to Kaleidoscope Trust, our charity partner for the Gay Times Honours. Kaleidoscope Trust worked tirelessly to uphold the human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people internationally. And finally, thank you to Matthew Stone for his 10 one-of-a-kind artworks. You can find out more about the Gay Times Honours in our show notes and at gaytimes.co.uk forward slash honours.